Hello, I'm Sarah Khan and welcome to Backing Brilliant Business, a series by Radio Centre. They're the people helping businesses of all sizes grow with great radio advertising. In this series, I will talk to guests who want to share their own unique expertise and experience to help you with your business. From marketing experts who have reshaped how we see a brand in the marketplace to entrepreneurs who've started at the bottom and are now at the top of their field. Each episode, we'll look through our guest CV to discover the most rewarding and most challenging aspects of their career so far. And we discover their three key lessons in business, the learnings, advice and practices that they want to share to help you be better at whatever it is you do. In this episode, we're joined by Baroness Saeed Wasi. Baroness Wasi stood as a parliamentary candidate and was elevated to the House of Lords at the age of 36, making her the youngest peer in Parliament and was also appointed as Chairman of the Conservative Party in 2010, the first Asian to chair a major British political party. Today, she joins us to talk about making change happen and shares three lessons that will help you with your business. Hello, Saida. I'll just basically, with my guests, look through their CVs and pick out those moments that are challenging, that were highlights, that really kind of took you into a different kind of dimension in your life. I want to start with you, though, with understanding your background. It's very similar to mine, but it's always nice to hear what it was like for somebody of immigrant parents growing up in this country back in the 70s. You know, how did that shape you? Everything I am today really starts from that, because two or three things that were so obvious in our upbringing. One was that we were an all-female family. And very early on, even though we never felt there was anything wrong with that, we were made to feel was that somehow my mum and dad had failed. And I know that my mum had a huge chip on her shoulder about the fact that she didn't have any male children. And this real sense of, right, I need to get onto the right side of the balance sheet was, was something that I think we understood, but also my mum from a very early age would consistently say to us, you've got to be better than their boys, whatever their men. There was no specific there, but it was, you just need to be better than the boys. Very early on, she sat us down. I must have been about 13, 14. And she in her head had worked out what she wanted us to be. And she literally sat all five of us down and she went <laughs> teacher, lawyer, accountant, <laughs> doctor, pharmacist. You know I mean, it was literally, and she said, you all five are going to go out and you are going to get five degrees for me. All of us in our own way were naturally academic and I got law. And so very early on, I knew I was going to be a lawyer and I just got my head down and I went on to university and I qualified as a lawyer. You're an Asian Muslim woman, okay? And you're going into prison, you're at the bar. It's quite still a male-dominated profession, I would say, especially higher up. Did you come across obstacles? And if you did, how did you get over it? Right from the outset, um, low expectations at school. So, you know, when I met the careers teacher, she absolutely thought, well, you know, you're not going to go to university, you're not going to be a lawyer. 
I think that sense that, you know, people like me weren't going to become lawyers, even in the police station, you know, the, I remember a police officer, I said, you know, can you tell me where the washrooms are? Because I was down there representing a client. And he deliberately directed me to the gents' toilets and thought it would be funny for me to walk in and, you know, walk in a whole load of blokes at the urinals. You know, it was, you know, I suppose you were a novelty. You were a woman in the cells. You were a brown woman. And then you were a five foot two brown woman in the cells. You know, this tiny little thing. The underestimation of Asian women and women generally, it played in my favour in the end because I think, well, underestimate your, your peril in the end. What matters is that I won. But I think each step of the way, which I'm sure you've had to do as well, every time you walk into something new, you have to almost prove yourself before anybody, it, it starts off with the premise of, well, she's probably not going to be great, or she's not going to be good at this, or she probably doesn't really deserve to be here. And then you have to work backwards from that to say, actually, I do, and I do know what I'm doing. You don't start from a level playing field. That's very interesting. Let's talk about your political career. What made you go into politics? I mean, that's the first question. What made you go from, you know, probably a very successful career in law and, you know, you're probably doing very well, it's all happening, and then you jump ship and you go, right, I'm going to go to politics now. I think a couple of things. I'd always been political. And at college, I was vice president of the student union. And so I really got into kind of student politics quite early on. You know, you'll remember Nelson Mandela being released from Robin Island. I remember all of us sitting there and watching him as he walked, you know, and sat around the box. It was a big moment in our lives. My dad's a huge storyteller, fantastic historian. And so political stories and you know, history of Islam, history of South Asia, all of that was a big part of discussions around the dinner table. There was always a big conversation going on. So I think I was very politically engaged from quite a young age. But I think that probably the pivot for me, I ended up in the end becoming a managing partner of quite a specialist niche legal practice, making more money than I could think of. And my first marriage was failing. And September the 11th happened. And I just remember sitting back and realizing that all those battles that we'd had for equality to be acceptable British Black, acceptable British Asian, were now being redefined. And I was now being told, oh, you're now British Muslim. And can you have all those arguments all over again about why you have equal worth and value? I thought, well, I can't do this. I'm checking out. And so I sold my legal practice, much to the horror of my parents. I packed my bags and I went to Pakistan, Sarah, a country I'd never known. I wasn't even born or raised there. And I spent a year, just under a year in Pakistan. I bought myself a car. I traveled the length and breadth of the country. I was completely bonkers. And when I was out there, I realized that if I had been the daughter of a poor man, which is where I was born, one of five girls on the verge of getting a divorce with a young female child, in the villages and the area where my parents have set off from in Punjab in Pakistan, there was nothing. And I thought, stop feeling sorry for yourself. What you need to do is pick yourself up. And I decided that nothing existed for a person in that position. And I set up a women's empowerment charity in rural Punjab. Today, it's had 30,000 women go through a program. We have a purpose-built women's center in Pakistan. You're going to go visit it when you go. It's like, there's this amazing yeah, rural village and then this huge building just saying, hello, I'm a women's center and we do empowerment. And, you know, it's now been running for 20 years. And having spent a year out there licking my wounds 
and realizing that you know there was a there was this sense of unease now between my country and my faith I thought well stop being such a coward if you want to make that better get back in check back in and do something about it so I came back to Britain and I basically got talent spotted and somebody said would you consider standing as a candidate and I said I will but I'll stand in my hometown I want to stand back in Dewsbury where I was born and raised and so I threw my hat in the ring in 2004 I got selected and I fought the 2005 election it literally kind of happened like that I mean it was a brutal election 2005 and I learned so much about race and misogyny and I didn't win. I always say that election was fascinating because I was too brown for some of them and too female for the others and I wasn't going to change either was I? And the number of people who subsequently have come up to me and said we got it wrong and so there has been a shift but then you know every time you break a barrier every time you push a new door you're going to get a few bruises but that's what leadership is about being prepared to take those bruises yeah I remember kind of coming home and thinking well god that was exhausting and then I got a call from Michael Howard who was leader at the time and he said look can you come down to London we'll have a chat about the election what happened and when I went down, the first thing he said to me was, right, first of all, I'd like you to become vice chairman of the party. So he just asked me to kind of take on this huge role. And secondly, I'd like you to meet this young man called David Cameron. And um, I was part of David's campaign. He ended up coming to Dewsbury. He, I ended up introducing him in Blackpool, where he did that big speech about wanting to be leader, changing the party. And I was part of his shadow cabinet team when he appointed me to the House of Lords. Yeah, the youngest ever person to become a peer. I mean, you're just breaking barriers and making history all over the place. And, and you know, at the time, the, the Lord's appointment didn't occur to me because what I thought I was doing was taking up the shadow cabinet post and I had to be a parliamentarian to take up that post. So the, Lord, the Lord's appointment was really a, a bit of a byproduct. It's only when I kind of walked in and I realised that the average yeah. age was 69. <laughs> I thought I, I just felt like a complete anomaly in this place. Each one of those moments was what really shaped what came next. And we then fought the general election. And you remember the 2010 election, which um, we formed a coalition government off the back of. And that's when David asked me to join the cabinet. Um, and the first time that in British history we'd had a Muslim become a cabinet minister. And he asked me to chair the political party, to become chairman of the party. Again, the first time we'd had an Asian chair a mainstream political party. It was very symbolic and it was the right thing to do, definitely. Because it brought us all together and it was like, there's one of me in there. There's one of me in there looking out for us. And it was it was key. It was representation. And, and I think being, being very true to yourself is something that really comes across in you as a person. But also a lot of business people, when they get to a certain level, they look back and they realise that they were making decisions based on profit only but when you start putting your morals and values into it actually a lot changes and you make your decisions differently so I think that's a fair point look you're a businesswoman. you had your own practice in law a lot of transferable skills that you used into politics I personally think that you were successful as a politician because you had that business insight you know what it takes to roll your sleeves up and get the job done and make those decisions that are for change and that's your theme because we all ask our guests to talk about a theme that they've chosen. Your theme is making change happen. What do you mean about that? What, what does that mean? 
I mean, I've actually been involved in five startups. I think my business career is something that's not often spoken about and everything from the service sector to manufacturing. And one of the largest businesses that I was involved in, I finally sold actually two years ago. And for me, I think often, I always say, where do you want to be when you start something? And it's the easiest way to then make change happen. Because if you know you have to reach point B, but you're at point A, you can then plan to get to point B. Whereas often I find that people start something, start a job, start a business, start politics, and haven't quite worked out what they're actually going to do once they get that seat, start that thing. And so I think when I talk about making change happen, you have to work out in each scenario, the time frame, the messaging, uh, the tone, the culture that you need to set to make that piece of change happen. So if you imagine the Women's Centre, if I'd gone in 20 years ago and said, I'm going to set up a Women's Empowerment Centre here and 30,000 of your women are going to be out earning for themselves and therefore you're not going to be able to tell them what to do anymore because they're going to have financial freedom. I would have lasted all of about three minutes, right? But we went in and we started this process of what are the needs for your family? All right, okay, your incomes are quite low. The ladies need supporting. The ladies are a bit of a burden on you because you feel you need to financially support them. We'll take that burden off you. We will support them. So you, they, give, they get the money, which makes your life a little bit easier. We got some of the big men in the community locally to start walking with us, supporting us. We negotiated with them. We consulted them on the big decisions. And we became a very safe partner, which 20 years later had put 30,000 women through a program and we had now had a huge women's center. So I think making change happen and having the skill set and the mindset to keep going to make change happen and, and, and having the emotional intelligence to understand how change happens in different environments in different ways is such an important part, whether you're in business or politics or just in your own personal life. Yeah, it's a very, very, I mean, everything that you've said is is is, is just spot on. Um, underneath that theme then of making change happen, the first lesson you say in order to do that is you need to act with consistency and tenacity. Just give me an example of what you mean by that, because you're spot on but what does that translate to in real life actions and behaviors um so let me give you an example on this debate which is now so current around islamophobia again and and you know my colleague and you know our friend Nusrat Ghani who's faced this terrible racism uh, the allegations that she's made is that she was sacked from her job for simply being a Muslim if you go back um you know 20-30 years we didn't even understand this concept of uh, racism towards Muslim communities the racialization of a community demonizing it stereotyping it um and so now we went through a process where they said it didn't happen it doesn't happen we don't know what it is we don't know what the term is to now saying it does happen we have the statistics to prove that it happens police forces across the country now disaggregate racial hatred crime and divide it into different religions so we can now statistically see that islamophobic hate crime is the highest in that category We've also got uh, community organizations who understand that process. We've now got to a point where we've got more or less an agreed definition of it, which large sections of the British Muslim community, academics, politicians have got behind. Every political party has supported it, except for the Conservatives in Westminster, although the Conservatives in Scotland have adopted it. And we've now appointed an advisor in government. We have a cross-government working group in government to look at the way in which this impacts upon people's lives. 
And we now have a media who finally has started reporting on these issues in public life. It's taken 20 years. And that's what I mean about tenacity, because, you know, often young people will say, well, you're, the fact that you're still going on about this 20 years on means we haven't succeeded. And I say, well, the fact that we're going on about Black Lives Matter over 100 years, you know, from when slavery was abolished. Well, actually, it means every generation has to keep up the fight for progressive liberal values. And if you fundamentally believe in change, then you have to be part of that agent of change. And each generation has to take up the flag. I mean, we only saw what happened in the US. Sarah. we went from, you know, the policeman of the world, you know, this amazing Western democracy suddenly having a run on parliament with people deciding they were going to take over and not accept a democratic election. You know, so very quickly things can unravel. And I think that's what I mean by about getting up every morning and saying, what am I going to do? And I always say this to people, break it up into chunks. You know, it's like being in the gym, right? Break it up into reps of five and you'll get to 15. Break it up into chunks. If you feel you can kick the can, that little bit further down the road in the right direction, when you get an opportunity in your time and you make sure you create the next generation of leadership who can equally keep kicking that can, then you've done your bit. And this work won't start with us and it won't end with us. As long as we can say we did our bit when we were given the opportunity, that's what I mean by consistent, you know, tenacious approach to change. So act with consistency and tenacity. The next lesson, lesson number two, and I like this because this is so underrated, but it's fundamental to your personal happiness. Be true to your principles. I think we spend a lot of our life trying to please people, um, to fit in, um, to, to, and yeah, look, compromise is important. You can't go through life without compromise. But I also think that there are some things which are so fundamentally a part of your core that you have to remain true to themselves even if it looks like in the short term you're harming your own you know relationships and your career and and everything else I was in cabinet in the foreign office doing probably one of the best jobs that I was ever going to do but in the end I couldn't sign off on things which fundamentally I didn't agree with you know I'm instinctively a human rights lawyer I believe in international justice and accountability these are a core part of my principles and when the conflict was going on in Gaza and we couldn't find a way of even finding the language to say that what was happening was against international humanitarian laws and accountability uh, and we couldn't even support, you know, a resolution at the United Nations Human Rights Council to, to, to say there should be accountability for any war crimes that may have been committed on any on either side. At that point, you have to say, you know, am I prepared to be a fig leaf for fundamentally values which are not just against my principles, but actually are fundamentally against our British values? for uh, political expediency or is it right for me to say I love this job but actually I think my values are far more important and again in my professional life I took a decision which in the short term seemed like you know a political suicide but you know every day I look back on it and think I'm so glad that at that point I made the right call because you have to be able to live with yourself and the older you get the more you realize how living true to your values and being a true version of yourself is such an important aspect of general well-being and
and living a good life. Yeah, I think one of the things that I've learned through life is that you may change, your environments may change, and you may have to reshape your principles, but fundamentally, your principles stay the same. They kind of carry you through life, but we don't normally check in on them. And it's really when you sit down, and let's say if you're starting a new business, or you're in the middle of a business, or you're towards the end of your business, you're just selling on, those principles as well, what you have to tap in to make that right decision because they will see you through. And, and, and I think in business, people just don't do that. They're just focused on trying to keep everything going, you know, uh, you know, customers and the VAT man and HMRC and, you know, the, all the tech stuff. But sometimes if you just sit down and go, right, what are my principles? What is my vision? What's my mission? What are my values? Because if you can just connect with those, some of those other things will just become a bit clearer and you just have that clarity of decision-making, don't you? Um, because you have to just, again, hone in on the principles. This podcast is brought to you by Radio Centre, who are helping businesses across the UK grow with radio advertising. Head to radiocentre.org forward slash business to discover how radio can boost your company's performance find out how the radio process works, hear from businesses who found success with audio advertising, access free training and even search for and be linked with stations in your area. You can find out all that and more at radiocentre.org forward slash business. Your final lesson is self-evaluate. I guess you've had to do a lot of that throughout your life. What do you mean by it and how do you do it? Um, I think running through, so I do it in a, I suppose, in quite a practical way where when I go to sleep, I actually run through the day that's just happened. And I just say, oh, what did I do? How did I do it? Could I have done it differently? And it's just instinctively it happens. I call it shutting down my windows. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a big laptop and I go to bed and I like shut down the windows, you know, and I press the crosses as I go along. And I think that process of just evaluating how the day went, um, and that's everything from, you know, have I just eaten rubbish all day today? Have I done, have, have I bombed do my steps today? Have I, you know, did I do that interview right? You know, did I, all of those little things. Um, then I think bigger self-evaluation where I do, you know, spend time taking time out, you know, whether it's during my prayers with namaz or whether it's meditation, just taking stock of a moment and just, um, I'm being grateful because part of self-evaluation is just being grateful for what you have uh, before you then focus on where you're going to go on to next. Baroness Saeed Awasi, talking to you has just been absolutely phenomenal. I feel like you've talked about my life, but without all of the glamour and the high positions and things. But I really, really relate to you. I think what I want to thank you really for is smashing the stereotypes for Muslim women out there, for Asian women. I think you've really clearly demonstrated that in life, yes, you have the highs, but it's the lows that really make you, give you that grit, give you that character. Um, and uh, yeah, I just think with so many amazing lessons and thank you so much for sharing your journey, but also giving us a lot of food for thought. Your theme was making change happen. You gave us three lessons, act with consistency and tenacity, be true to your principles and self-evaluate. Now, listen, young lady, I'm not going to let you get away with things so easily. I ask all my guests 
to put this into a radio jingle, their three messages. So if somebody is listening to this today and they want to just remind themselves of those messages, you know a jingle can get into your head. What would your jingle be for what you want us to take home after this conversation? I don't know if it's a jingle, but there is uh, something that I do say is ABC. Remember the ABC when you walk into anything. My ABC is be authentic, be brave, be challenging. I love it. I love it. Could you do that in a Punjabi style Hollywood uh, musical kind of setting? Oh, God. <laughs> I think we need an Asian accent on it. Come on, Saida. Do it. <laughs> but like, be authentic, be brave and be challenging. I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> do you realise an Asian accent is like a Welsh accent? It is. I always, come a, I always come across Welsh. They're going, that's not Pakistani, that's Welsh. I'm like, I can't do Pakistani. Thank you so much for your time. Well, that's been the Backing Brilliant Business podcast with me, Syrah Khan. And I really hope you've enjoyed the many words of wisdom that came from our chat. There'll be more amazing guests to come in the series with plenty of business lessons to be learned. So please subscribe and leave us a rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to follow Radio Centre across all of their socials on Instagram at Radio Centre underscore UK and on Twitter at Radio Centre. The Backing Brilliant Business series was produced by Audio Always for Radio Centre and co-created by Eardrum. Visit radiocentre.org forward slash business for more information.